Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. there was some greater hand writing this this book that's how i felt and i was just basically recording what was happening that was the one and only diana pasulka and if you have never thought of the allegory of the cave as the f- world's first red pill you're not going to want to miss this conversation it's coming to you right after this word from our sponsor Hey, Mickey Z here. And as many of you already know, for nearly seven years, I've been running a one-man program to help homeless women on the streets of New York. And you could check the show notes for a link that explains it in more detail. Um, I am also looking to expand this program, and I'm starting to do that in small steps now. And I want to help more people in bigger ways in addition to the homeless women. And basically, to put it simply, I want to try and facilitate miracles on the streets. And I'm there is another link in the show notes that you can check out to learn a little bit more about that. So I'm going to just leave you guys to... Click on those links, learn more, and follow your heart because I need your financial support and I need you to share the links in order to keep this going and growing. So I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. And I'm back with Diana Pasulka. Diana, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you so much, Mickey. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Um, I could see myself picking your brain about God and miracles and levitation, but in light of the seemingly ongoing popularity of your book, American Cosmic, and all the recent headlines about aliens, I feel almost obligated to start with UFOs, but I don't want to just jump in with the to- with the topic of asking you how in the world did a religious scholar like you get involved in all of this? Because you've probably answered that question a thousand times, at least in your life now. But at the same time, some of my listeners won't know your backstory. So I'm going to try and choose a different entry point and we'll see how much ground we can cover. And what I'm curious about is that since you got involved in um, researching and writing about and speaking about topics related to UFOs, um, ha- has there been a question that you've never been asked or a topic that you feel is not discussed enough in all the interviews you've done? Or possibly, is, is, are there topics that you feel people tend to focus on more than you kind of expect them to or understand that they want to focus on? Like, what what have you learned from your perspective as to what people expect from you and what people seem to care about related to UFO type of topics? Okay, that's a great question. And thank you for asking it. So I would say that a lot of people have assumptions about what a UFO is already. And what I tried to do in American Cosmic was break up that assumption um, and talk about UFOs from the perspective of a person who's, who's an academic and who studies belief, right? Belief structures. 
so that's that's one entryway um, if your viewers or listeners are interested in you know, they probably already think they know what a UFO is. And I start off my book by saying, we actually don't know what a UFO is. And in fact, uh, we hold a lot of assumptions that we carry from childhood images uh, from, you know, depending on your generation, either Lost in Space, Star Trek, Star Wars, The X-Files, and, you know, what we see today all over media in terms of video games and, you know, just what we see, the the many, many documentaries that use a lot of, you know, created images of UFOs instead of actual footage from, you know, what people would have in their, you know, when they take a, a screenshot from their camera or a video, which I've seen now more than thousands of, of these. And I would say that we have to, to take a broad perspective, which is what I did in my book, American Cosmic, I read, I actually came to the topic through studying the historical records of Catholicism, Catholic history, which is what I, my specialty is in. And an, another thing people don't understand is what people do when they study religion. So in the university, when we study religion, we actually don't advocate, we're not advocating religion. We're, I'm not a minister. Um, my colleagues are not priests. Some of us are atheists, actually. And we're academics and we study religion because most people in the world are actually religious. And religion is a huge force, a driving force for most people in the world. So it's a good thing to study. And a lot of us, you know, some study Buddhism, some study Hinduism. Um, but we have general, you know, we teach general courses on what religions are and and it's good for people to know that religions there there's a variety of different religions some are atheists like in buddhism you know uh siddhartha gautama the original buddha and buddha means awake is a title actually you know he actually didn't recommend believing in a god <laughs> so it's it's an atheistic type religion mm. and um so a lot of people have assumptions about religion and then they have assumptions about UFOs. And so my job is actually kind of difficult in, in that I have to complicate both assumptions. And I have to say, these things that people have been seeing in the sky historically in written source records, also in oral traditions that go back thousands and thousands of years, uh, they interpret them mostly based. I mean, these things are actually we have records of these things. We know that people have been seeing things like this in the sky ever since there have been human communities, which has been a long time. And so the question then becomes, you know, uh, how do people interpret them? Well, they interpret them based on what they know and also their own media. So back in 1100 to about 1600 in the European tradition, when people saw things in the sky, they couldn't, um, you know, they were unknown. They would they would interpret these things variously as either angels or demons or souls from purgatory. So it really wasn't until about the the early modern time period when people start to think. And by the way, this idea of beings from other planets this also has been around for thousands of years. So it's nothing new. So that's what I guess uh, that would be a, a one way to talk about you know, the UFO. And then today we have, of course, the ongoing congressional hearings about UFOs that have just started, uh, you know, things that have happened 
just basically as soon as my book was published. So before my book was published, which was in 2019, there, this was, you know, these programs were absolutely not understood. They were not talked about. Um, I'd give, you know, I'd give conferences to academics and I'd talk about my research and they honestly thought they, I, I was already considered a good researcher. So they were trusting me. But when I told them about these programs, they were like, Diana, you've been duped. You know, these programs don't exist. What happened to you? And so I thought, well, okay, I know what my research is sound. Like I know that they exist. And so it was really a relief actually when Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal and Helene Cooper, uh, you know, um, wrote their New York Times expose on the programs in 2017. And since then, it's just been, you know, nonstop. Uh, my book took off. Um, I felt vindicated. <laughs> so this this all happened. Okay. Th- thank you for, you just gave me so many potential segues there. And I, if if time permits later, I would like to come back to ask you about the concept of um, atheists, not Atheist, as the way you just described it from the Buddhist tradition, but atheists perhaps in the modern secular c- tradition, also being religious scholars and teaching religion in school. If we have time, maybe we'll come back to that. And I also, I've heard you before talk about how um, an entry point for you to, because you've studied um, beliefs about purgatory and then you read about the UFOs, there was this, there was this intersection of Things, whatever they are, being seen in the sky, potentially angels, demons, or souls on their way or stuck on their way to purgatory. And just, I don't know if this is a quick answer for you, but is even with all you've learned about UFOs, it, do you still believe it's possible that what people were seeing between 1100 and 1600 were angels, demons, or souls in the sky? Yeah, so this is a great question. And how I would answer it is this, is that they were using the language and the knowledge that they had at the time to describe what they were seeing. Um, I would suggest that today, instead of looking back and saying, oh, they were actually seeing UFOs, I would say that we're also using the language and knowledge that we have to describe what we see. All right. So it's still a framework. And we still don't understand what we're seeing in the sky. Um, It definitely, you know, I've, I know a lot of people who do study it um, and I get a lot of research data and I can say that the correlations between what people are experiencing today are, are consistent with what they were seeing in 1200, you know, 1300 onward. Wow. That's awesome. Um, All right. And now you, you, you mentioned the topic du jour in terms of what's being revealed in the, in an increasing um, high number by the government. And I will tell you that the listeners to this show, many of them would fit into what is either, uh, let's say, I don't mean this disparaging in any way at all, as conspiracy theorists. So, so a lot of the folks that I interact with in the past would have been the one saying, no, UFOs are real and, and talk in really, really incredible detail, heavily researched detail about it. But now, since the government is offering the information, the people that fall under the conspiracy theory umbrella are more likely to be saying, no, 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 this alien news is fake. 
and we're hearing from um, David Grush and that the government is in possession of alien crafts and bodies and there's been reverse engineering and aliens have, have shown aggression and maybe even killed humans. And what, what I would ask coming out of I I'm, I wouldn't label myself a conspiracy theorist, but I definitely have done a lot of writing and reading in the past of alternative perceptions on how governments are run. And the the um, the the old classic journalist I F Stone once said, "Every government is run by liars, and nothing they say should be believed." So I'm asking you, Diana, why should anyone believe what the government is deciding to tell us? in 2023 about a topic that they've been so notoriously secretive about or even dismissive of in the past? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And I'm not suggesting anybody should, by the way. Okay. Um, I, did, I definitely don't have a dog in the race and I never did. Um, I'm studying this topic. And, um, you know, in fact, it's been one of the, if, if not the most fascinating thing that I've taken up in my life to study. So no, I don't, I'm not proposing anything just like I don't advocate any specific religion. I'm not advocating that your listeners drop their suspicion. In fact, I would suggest that, um, along with the quote that you just, um, you know, related the, the allegory of the cave by Plato in, the book, The Republic, you know, he's he's talking about a government and he's asking whether or not governments can be just and whether or not they can be run by just people. And in the end, it seems like he's saying no, but he's also suggesting an alternative way of living in the world. And so while I did this study, I think one of the most discouraging, but also um, more shocking than even belief in UFOs to me was the amount of perception management that our government's been doing since the 1940s and today. And this, this definitely impacted me and influenced me, depressed me even, such that I had to go back to those books that I read when I was in my 20s that helped me, you know, through being a you know 20-something-year-old and and get trying to get through life, which seems so unjust. And so I went back to Allegory of the Cave and I used that as a framework in order to understand what's happening now. So, um, you know, nobody's going to call Plato a conspiracy theorist, okay? <laughs> so he was doing good work, and his, his you know, his work is absolutely relevant today. So now, get, getting back to what the government's doing now, I don't think we have a choice. I think that we have... Um, so listen, the government can be leaking accurate information as well as trying to control the narrative, all right? So... Um, you know, I'm here to say that these there's a consistent pattern of these things that we've been seeing in the sky. And you can see it in all different traditions. And, you know, the government then has its own version of what the UFO is. And and a lot of what, in my opinion, what's happening is, you know, a creation of, well, who are the people that are going to release the information? It's going to be these whistleblowers. They're not going to ask me, even though I did go to an alleged crash site and saw parts and debris. And I was with Gary Nolan and, you know, the Stanford professor in my book, I call him James. And, you know, we actually had more evidence than the whistleblowers, but we will not be called to the con congressional hearings because we don't have clearances. We're not involved in military. Um, you know, we, we're rogue. And that's, 
you know, that's outside of the narrative and I can speak outside of the narrative. And that's a good place to be. I did have people who I was working with during the writing of American Cosmic who repeatedly told me, if you ever get asked to to have a clearance, resist, don't do it, because you will lose your ability to speak freely. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I, let me just quickly say to the listeners, I read American Cosmic last year, and there will be links in the show notes to that and all your books. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It, it is such a trip in terms of the connections you make. And it's, it's like following you on where you have sort of half a map and you just keep adding pieces to the map and you wind up at some point in the Vatican, which, which is, which is mind blowing that they have a observatory there. And I've heard you say on, on, other podcasts that you you said that UFOs now are having their Christianity moment. Um, I, w- I would love for you to elaborate on that. And does that relate in any way to the fact that the Vatican seems to pop up in a lot of discussions about UFOs? Yes, I think that, well, for one thing, they do keep amazing records. So I was at the Vatican with uh, the person who I'd gone to New Mexico with. He He's a person, I call him Tyler D., he works with the Space Force. He was a mission controller. And, um, you know, this was his hobby. He ca- called it his hobby was studying UFOs. And so he had said to me, I don't think you believe in UFOs. Like, I think you just think that they're subjective experiences and they're actually objective. And I want to take you to a place where one's landed. And no, I didn't believe in UFOs. This was in, you know, way back in 2013. And I will, I was studying them as subjective experiences. And so, you know, he said, if I take you to New Mexico, you're going to see some stuff that's actually real. And of course, being what, you know, I'm a professor, so this is what I'm supposed to do. It's called field research. Um, but I was pretty uncomfortable going. So I, I suggested that we bring a friend of mine and that was Dr. Gary Nolan. And, um, he said, sure. So we did. So we went and we did, uh, see some of these things. Um, we did, you know, look for debris and things like that. So again, I wasn't, I mean, he did predict that we would get stopped at the airport. He kind of predicted everything that would happen there. And it all did happen exactly how he, he predicted. And he also made a lot of predictions about my book and what would happen after all of them came true. So um, I was, you know, even, even as my book was, was published, um, I was still, I wouldn't call myself a non-believer. I'm just, you know, I'm just hesitant to conclude. I don't know what it is, but there's something. And then so we go to the Vatican and it was actually a trip for my research where I was going to look at, at the the canonization records of this this uh priest who's known to levitate named Joseph of Copertino. And um and while we were there, uh my my friend Tyler got full access to lots of different people and things at the Vatican. So I had certain access because of my credentials. And also, uh, we stayed at the Vatican Observatory um, on the invitation of Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's the director of, of that place. And I was invited to look at their holdings there because they have a space archive. Um, but while we were there, we did, you know, we we made some connections between what are in the historical records and what is, you know, what's happening now. And these were really odd connections that I didn't expect to tell you the truth, Mickey. I honestly did not expect any of this. And, um, and so that had to end the book. 
Wow. You know? I, 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 my head is going to explode from the potential directions we could go in from there. But what, what um, I, I can't help but ask, because you brought up the allegory of the cave, that when you're traveling with someone who has this access, um, the Tyler D character, and then he's making predictions and they're coming true, were you ever suspicious that that he knew they were happening because he was playing a role in engineering them, therefore like the shadows on the wall? Or or was he was he did you feel that he was speaking from years of experience that this is the way the machine operates? And if someone does something like this, then almost a hundred percent of the time the, the machine grinds in this direction and you're gonna see this happen. What was your sense of like of what how comfortable you were um believing the material the information you were being told by people who come from notoriously deceptive or secretive places? Yeah, so this is such a great question. And I want to emphasize, at no point did I believe, nor do I believe now. So the only thing that I do is I corroborate what I can. And what I can corroborate is that these things are being studied now. And whatever they are, have patterns that go back you know, thousands and thousands of years. So, so um, now the the question you're asking me is, how does somebody in my field, a professor, um, work with somebody who comes from these agencies, which are known and have been absolutely known to be deceptive? And so, what I did was I utilized a lot of the techniques that I learned from Dr. Jacques Vallée. And, um, you know, he was helpful. He told me over and over again, do not believe anything, even if you see it for yourself. And, you know, I, at first I struggled to find the methods. In fact, my first, the introduction to American Cosmic has me, which by the way, is an academic book. You know, I'm an academic. So I was believing that I was going to write to academics and tell them, this is how we've got to do this, everyone. Like, you know, we will be, you know, given things that are meant to deceive us and we will be used to promote the information they want us to promote. So how do we subvert this? And so what I did was I did like crash course in starting in 2013 in, you know, history of the CIA and history of the techniques that they used. And I actually knew a lot of people that could help me, um, my own brother, actually, who uh, worked as a Green Beret and did, you know, worked alongside people who did PSYOP work. And so I was able to distill this learning into methods and strategies. One of the best methods I learned, by the way, was prior to this, I was doing this work in this book of um, purgatory. And a lot of it had to do with the Irish tradition, the Irish Catholic history. And what I learned was that um, there were there were strategies used by the English colonists to completely rewrite the history of the Irish, the indigenous Irish. And so um, what I learned was that in order to to get through that, to to figure out what actually you know was a more accurate because you can never get history accurately. Let's mm. let's just be clear. Um, but how do we get more accurate? You know, so what you do is you go through oral traditions. Um, you go through um, poetry, songs, folklore, things like that. And what I learned was that Tyler D had his own 
uh, his own tradition of um, intelligence, and it was oral tradition. And a lot of this uh, stuff was not written down. So, you know, a lot of the people are looking for the declassified um, documents. Well, guess what? They You're not going to find them because they're through oral tradition. So a lot of it had to do with who you knew, where you were, um, you know, that kind of thing. So you had to kind of become part of the communities enmeshed. Hmm. And so this is this is something that academics don't want to do, and I don't blame them. Um, you know, there th- there's danger involved, and also, um, you, why would you want to do that? You know, if you're an academic and you have a you know a tenured position, and you know, you, for the one thing, you don't want to have your credibility challenged. I was already really credible. I didn't fear that at all. Um, but so I can completely understand why academics don't want to do this, but. I will be clear, you cannot do this research unless you know the tactics of these these um, communities and how they work. Oh, absolutely. When you were describing that, it made me think for a second of when um, something like the FBI is tracking the mafia. Like the mafia is not putting anything in writing and they're also very not going to do much on the phone either. And they'll try, they'll, they'll walk, they'll talk while walking, anything to avoid being recorded and, and, Therefore, to really know what they're doing and how they operate, you have to know, you you have to understand their tactics. So it's it's interesting that 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 concept it can be aimed in any direction. And I also I also you said before when you, when you were first just introducing that you teach religion, but you say I'm not a minister. I'm not trying to get anyone to be. To, to follow a religion. And then the same thing with the, with the UFOs, you said, I'm not, I'm not necessarily telling anyone um, I believe this or I believe that, but um, when it comes to religion, you are Catholic, right? Is that something that you say? Or, yeah. Or, I'm okay. a, yes. I, I'm a practicing Catholic. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cause I went to 12 years of Catholic school. So I, I'm fascinated by those, the, by the related topics. And even when you, when you segue there into the priest that levitates, I do want to come back to levitation, but did you get any sense that if the Vatican has these meticulous records, and as you said, going as far back as any type of recorded history exists, that people have been looking to the skies and seeing some version of what we're seeing today. Does the Vatican, did they give you an impression that they have a stance on the general topic of life on other planets in terms of how it fits into the the, the strict Catholic Catholic tradition? Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I, I'm more, I'm most aligned with their understanding of the phenomena than any other institution. And they don't have a, a position, right? They're not, they haven't declared any position on extraterrestrial life. Um, the closest that they've come is a book by Brother Guy, um, Consul Magno and uh, Thomas Mueller, um, a priest that he wrote, co-authored the book with. It's an excellent book. And, you know, he basically goes through the, it's called, Will You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's basically, it goes through the history of the, of the idea of the plurality of worlds and shows that people were talking about this in ancient Greek times and all through medieval Catholic history, which is true. And, um, you know, so it's, it's nothing new for them. And they're not, they don't, it's, so, you know, I think that um, I'm not speaking for the Vatican, but I can say that that I'm aligned with the idea that, you know, it's all been disclosed. You know, we we all have this this uh, 
we, you know, we all know people who've seen these, these things. And so they do have, in fact, they probably have more documents than they even know. Because when I went in there, I found a lot and I was like, well, you know, we have this and that. And, um, they didn't know they had it. So they have a lot, you know, they have, a. they're not out there like, okay, let's look for the UFOs from the 1400s or something like that. And they have a lot of really interesting data, as well as a lot that's really public, like the Marian apparitions are really interesting in terms of their correspondences with, um, you know, with UFO events. I mean, there's a lot of aerial phenomena that happen when the Virgin Mary is, you know, seen, uh, including levitations and things like that, which you also see in the uh, the abductions, right? When yes. people talk about alien abductions, I mean, this, the patterns are so similar. So it was um, what what really piqued my interest. You could say um, all of it, of course, is fascinating. But what piqued my interest was that there were things that couldn't have been set up uh, around Tyler that I like. He didn't. I was already scheduled to go to the Vatican before I ever met him, and it was me who invited him to go. And so, you know, I thought, well, he's expert at looking at this aerial phenomena and I'm going to look at aerial phenomena. So it seems like a good idea for him to go with me. So, you know, that's and when he went, he was amazed and completely transformed. So it was a transformative experience for him. None of this could have been predicted. Right. Yes. So there were, so it was almost as if there was some greater hand writing this this book that's how i felt and i was just basically recording what was happening almost so, right. so that, yeah so that really that really piqued my interest but during the time period of being at you know in new mexico and you know him saying these things i was completely and in fact i put that in the book for my readers because i have an obligation to be completely honest with my readers so i basically said Gary and I would, you know, have a little powwow here and there and say, are we being set up, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It, it's just utterly fascinating. And when when I went to Catholic school and, you know, when you're in Catholic school, you, you reach an age or any school, you reach an age where you get rebellious. So I can remember me and my friends, we would you would try and stump the nuns or priests that priests that are teaching you. And if we talked about UFOs, we would bring it up. They They wouldn't. We would ask questions like, "Well, if there's life on other planets, did did were they peaceful, or did God have to send Jesus to those planets too, or did he send other? Did he have other kids that he would send there?" Now, they the nuns and priests didn't like the tone of those questions, but I think putting aside the 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 adolescent uh, snarkiness, I think that there are some valid questions there to ask, like if you're going to adhere to any type of earthly religion, but at the same time accept the the strong likelihood that there is life elsewhere. Um, how does that coincide, and how does that how, like how does that coexist? Oh yeah, that's not a problem. Um, why would it be for one? If uh, in fact a lot of Catholic, uh, like especially medieval theologians, would say God is the is the creator of creation, and if creation, you know, this is a huge universe. They knew it then. And they said, probably life exists on other planets and God created that life too. And perhaps God, you know, who knows how God set up their, their way of salvation, or maybe they don't need to be saved. You know, they did ask all of these questions as speculations. And um, so it's not a problem. And in fact, I would say that every single religion that I know of, um, 
has a metaphysical, except for some new religious movements, but most of them actually, even them, um, they have categories for understanding things that humanists or secular humanists wouldn't think that they would have. They just see religions as being archaic without rational thought, but that's actually not true. So a lot of people who are, uh, say, Muslim or, say, Hindu or Catholic, um, Baptist, you know, you name a religion. And within that religion, some people have had sightings of UFOs that didn't make them less religious and even maybe made them more religious. Oh, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it would fall under, in my mind, it would fall under the category of miracle. Like it's, it's, and which then, which then fits neatly into, uh, you know, I could speak for my personal training, but I've heard enough about other religions to know that you would believe that, that the supernatural, what we would call the supernatural can happen by the hand of somebody above us. And, and, I, yeah, I find this fascinating, and I I don't know that much. If you don't mind a segue into like religious type of topics, I I I read your book, and I've seen you on so many podcasts, but I don't know much, a whole lot about your work on issues issues like um, topics like levitation, bilocation, and so on. Is, what could you share in in a brief way to tell us like? why these top a little about the topics and why they've led you to, to zero in on them on at, at different times as a, um, a target of research for you. Sure. So a lot of my research has to do with uh, how, what we perceive in pop culture informs our, our religiosity. So, I mean, and this is a completely, it has nothing to do with supernatural. It has to do with how we, conceive of the supernatural and how that impacts how we believe about it or what we believe about it. So when I get students, they come to my, like my basic survey class and a lot of them are Christian. And so, uh, we actually, I asked them what they know about Genesis, um, you know, the first chapter of the Bible. And so they, um, or the first book of the Bible, excuse me. And so they, um, they tell me about Adam and Eve and I say, tell me that story. So they tell me the story and I said, ah, you got this from popular culture, but you sure didn't get this from the book of Genesis. And then they will laugh at me and say, no, that's not true. And I say, okay, let's do a deep dive into the book of Genesis. And then we look and see that there are actually two creation stories in there. And only one of them has to do with Adam and Eve. And it doesn't look like how they've described it. And the other creation story actually talks about God creating two people together, not you know, one after the other, and that, you know, they weren't necessarily, I know this sounds really weird, but they weren't necessarily, um, they were created equal, <laughs> is what I want to say. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, but with then we look at the ways in which they, they draw pictures of what they think the book of Genesis is about. And they don't, the pictures show no correlation to actually what the actual book says. So I make them read their Bible. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing that happens. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's what I do day to day. That's kind of like my day to day work. But what I do in my scholarship is I also look at how, you know, supernatural things like other worlds, purgatory, um, angels and demons, how these get, you know, portrayed as well. And in doing this, what happened, what, what actually, this is, uh, this is one of the things you can't make up. Okay. So, um, when I, when I finished purgatory, 
um, I was asked to do research into levitation um, by a person who, who's, who's uh, aunt. Um, this is a person who's in his eighties and his aunt uh, was a nun and he had seen her levitate when, when he was a child. So he was fascinated. And so I, and he knew I could get into the Vatican archive in order to look at this. It's now called the apostolic archive, but back then it was the, the secret archive. So I finished this book about purgatory where I'd looked at all of these things. And this person asked me to access uh, documents about levitation and this this um, priest is a well-known levitator, the Joseph of Copertino. And so I went there. And at the same time that I was doing that, that's when I started to recognize the connections between UFO um, testimonies and levitation. And so I took Tyler D. with me to, to try to figure this out. So what's interesting is that levitation is a thing. <laughs> it's not, it's a rare thing. Okay. And it happens under certain circumstances. And so, um, I just am in, I'm still in the process of, I haven't actually published anything about it. Um, but I do have a lot of data on it and I'm compiling that data right now. And I'm working with other people who, who also have data about it as well. So, um, so I'm not, and then of course, along with this idea of levitation comes bilocation. A lot of the saints in the Catholic Church, not a lot of them, but uh, many enough of them have um, been described as being in two places at once, which is called bilocation. And so I'm I'm doing work in this too, and I think this is really interesting. But I haven't actually published anything about it. I'm in this this stage of just acquiring a lot of data about it. Okay. Well, I'm I'm certainly already looking forward to that, and. Um, you know, I, I live in New York City, and I could at least speak for the Catholics that I know here. There's a big reverence for Padre Pio, and I know that there's there's one of his miracles where the, the, he was simultaneously levitating and bilocating during World War II, I believe. And I, I find these topics fascinating, and I'm curious, in as you research it and you look towards a point of publishing something like you said, levitation is a rare thing. Do you allow for the possibility that it was more common in the past and that humans, as we became, quote unquote, more civilized, stopped using um, or were like almost subtly coerced into using any type of power that would seem abnormal? Like and even like performing some type of miracle, because right as Jesus says in the Bible, that if we believe in him, we will do these works that he, greater works than he does. So that to me sounds like he's saying we can at least facilitate miracles, but you don't hear these stories except about rarefied people like saints. So can you allow for the possibility that non-saints have these divine capabilities, but we're, we're because of cultural reasons, we're, we, we don't even allow ourselves to entertain the possibility that we could do something like bilocate. Yes. So it's not just in the Catholic tradition that you see bilocation spoken about, levitation, incorruptible bodies, you know, um, these actually, you see these in other religious traditions as well. And of course, there are people who are not saints who have been, who have levitated. So yes, absolutely. It's not something that's just confined to the Catholic tradition. Oh, that's awesome to know. Now, you, you mentioned that you also do, you write about um, or study demons and angels. Um, in particular, have you done work related to guardian angels? 
Oh, okay. So uh, some of the first publications I did had to do, I know this is, <laughs> sounds pretty grim, but it had to do it with an incredibly popular genre of literature in the 1600s and 1700s. And it's going to appear really macabre to us. We're going to think, oh my goodness, how did these people like do this? But, but during that time period, you have to understand that there was a really high rate of death and people died young. And a lot of those people happen to be children. So the most, one of the most popular books of uh, children's books of the 1600s is called A Token for Children. And it's basically a, an anthology of, of actual deaths of children and what they see and talk about before they die. And um, this actually was a book that helped the literacy rate of, uh, of people during this time period. The Pilgrims. Uh, they had one of the highest literacy rates. It was like something like 97% or something like that. It was really, really high. And so the kids were brought up on these books. And, the, and the, you know, we would, of course, never want to share these books with our kids. Um, although we do let them watch violent things and, yeah. and engage in violent video <laughs> <Yeah>. games, right? <laughs> but um, so, you know, think of these as like video games for like people in the 1600s and the 1700s. And a lot, and so... Two of the publications had to do with this genre, and I was really amazed and impacted by these this work because these were actual kids, and they were they actually this was you know these these were records of their deaths and the ways in which they impacted these communities, and it was really difficult to get through. To tell you the truth, um, I was a mother of young kids, you know, and this was. I was like terrified to get right. through, but I did because it was a, it hadn't been written about. But what I was fascinated with was sometimes the kids would take like a week or two weeks to actually pass on, you know, to pass uh, into the, the other realm, I guess. And they would have these experiences of seeing um, spirits and angels and things like that. And, and even seeing, you know, having visions of, of hell, you know, what they consider to be hell and how this and people would come then from miles around to get news of their past away relatives. And um, anyway, so this was really intense research, um, you can imagine. So these were my first publications. So people would come to the town where they knew there was a child that was close to death to see if that child could help them communicate with a, a loved one that they lost? Yes. Wow. And so did so did was there specifically something related to guardian angels in, in what these children said that that they that they articulated that they there was an angel assigned to them? Yes, I'm going to tell you a few things that you might get upset about, but um I'm so open to it. warning here. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. So they would talk about not only their guardian angels, but they would also say that a lot of well people get assigned, I guess, um, guardian angels, but also a demon. Wow. Assigned by who? I guess this is something that happens to souls when they become, you know, to become here on earth. We, you know, we're told as Catholic children that we have a guardian angel, but we're never told we have also an, a demon. <laughs> wow. So it's, I've never heard that there was, I mean, I, I've heard, countless things and i've and i've wit i've um, watched a bunch of videos of catholic exorcists discussing their personal experience with demons but i've never heard someone articulate that there is a i don't want to say guardian demon i don't know what would be what would you call them but that that's um 
that's pretty mind blowing. So, so the guardian angel is there to keep the demon away, I assume. No. Um, so this now, now, of course, as a professor, I'm saying that this was the belief. Yes, right? I understand. So the people, yeah, people believed in that they had these guardian angels, but they also believed that they had the, the demons who were there as tempters, you know, to, to because uh, we're here and we get tempted and, you know, we, we either, you know, we can get over that temptation and go the way of the guardian angel. So, so yes, so that they believed in this as well. Oh, that's fascinating. So suddenly I'm transported back to that scene in Animal House with, with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, which then seems more accessible. We, we're, we're countlessly presented in life, these crossroads where we have to make these moral decisions as to where, uh, what boundaries we're willing to set and what lines we're willing to cross. But it, to have that articulated by a child, is, I've never heard that before. Because I'm fascinated by the concept of guardian angels and what I, I find myself pondering, for example, right now, you and I've been chatting for a while. Is your guardian angel hanging out with mine right now while we chat or do they not talk to each other? Like I find myself pondering such questions because if they're with you 24-7 and me 24-7, what are they doing while we're blah, blah, blahing on on the Internet? And and uh, I, 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 I actually have fun pondering what what their daily life is because it's so based on the choices I make. Yes. Yeah. It's really different. Um, I, and I agree with you that scene that you're talking about that we've all seen, you know, the angel on one side and the demon or the devil on the other. Um, that's definitely where this comes from. So that in popular culture comes directly out of this tradition. Fantastic. All right. I, be, I, we're going to come back and wrap up on UFOs, but there's one more topic that I've heard you just touch on that I would love to just hear your, you say a little bit more. You've, you've mentioned on podcasts, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, so correct me if I got something wrong, that your work in a variety of fields that you're in, and I think the listeners are now pretty uh, aware of, of what a broad scope of topics fascinate you and, 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 and get your attention. In this work, you've come to have um, a, a different perception of time than you might have had before you started doing this work. A, a, do I have that correctly? And if so, could you elaborate a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I do. And this came about through working with people in uh, artificial intelligence communities. So when my book came out, a lot of people who experienced life very much like Tyler D, like they they believed that they downloaded, uh, they were incredibly successful. And they'd been in the uh, communities of artificial intelligence since they were young. So, you know, they're, we're talking about people who were... Uh, first in on a lot of the platforms that we now consider to be, you know, legacy platforms. All right. So these people, and I, you know, as I learned to do the best research for me is enmeshing yourself in these communities, because that's how you learn the most. Uh, well, they have, they're very informed by physics and also physics that's cutting edge right now. And so they don't have an idea of time like like I used to, like the linear idea of time. So you just described your guardian angel as kind of experiencing time like you do. But if it is truly a guardian angel and it does exist, it's not experiencing time as we do. Um, you know, so there's there's an idea of the simultaneity of time and other dimensions as well. So in that sense, my my framework for understanding time has completely changed. And also this this, you know, it helped me 
reframe how I understood what happened to me during American Cosmic, where I felt like things were being orchestrated and I couldn't really understand. They they could not have been orchestrated by even the most brilliant three-letter agency people, right? I mean, it was just things that you couldn't make up. And it seemed like almost as if the future was somehow impacting the present. So this this helped me understand that better. Wow. So would, would, would this have to do with the possibility of different timelines existing and any one of us could move from one to the other, even unwittingly? Yeah, I think that happens unwittingly. I think that, uh, you know, sometimes people in their dreams, you know, have access to different timelines and then they wake up with information that makes sense to them maybe a week later or something like that. I mean, this could, this could be the explanatory framework that supports those weird experiences. Wow. And all right, so real quick segue here. I didn't expect this topic to come up, but since you mentioned AI, um, do you um, see AI as something that is purely, I've I've heard people talk about that AI is a pre-existing consciousness that's just waiting, that was waiting for a, an avenue in which to exist. And then human computers, et cetera, made that possible. I've always it's kind of rudimentary, but I've always looked at AI that that in theory it's one thing, but in practice it's completely based on which humans are in power, which is typically a certain type of human in modern day Earth, and therefore what are what quote unquote intelligence are they um, embedding into these machines? What would be your take on AI coming from a perspective of studying religions and then UFOs and then everything else that has intersected? Is it something that you feel is usurping um, human autonomy into transhumanism or can you see something more positive coming out of it? We've already, the transhumanism issue has already happened. We're already transhuman. I mean, if you could see the studies that show what certain social media does to our brains, um, you would understand that physiologically we are altered by the technologies that have come into existence in the last 20 years. So that's already happened. Um, so, but AI, I believe from ex- from basically conversations that I've had with like the people that I just told you about, there is a huge fight some would call it a war happening right now over this technology. And there's various forms of AI, of course. Um, But, and the question is, first off, bankers have been using AI algorithms to make trillions of dollars now for 20 years. So there's a, there's a chance at this point that AI can actually help the common person, right? Make money and not have to live the existence that we've been living for you know, since we've been born. Okay. So, um, so there's this revolutionary aspect that's potentially there with AI, just as it was with the printing press. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That said, there's also just as you described the desire to keep AI for the people who, uh, you know, want it and, you know, want to keep the, you know, the land for themselves and, the goods and the resources for themselves. So, um, you know, this is this is kind of the ongoing narrative. The, there is a quote-unquote doomer narrative of AI, like, you know, AI is going to kill humans and this and that. Um, I would suggest that that's actually, if you have an a audience that, you know, 
um, wants to think through these narratives. Why is that the narrative now? Why isn't the narrative, hey, there's an opportunity to utilize AI to help many, many people, millions and billions of people. Amen. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I would suggest that this, bo- this, uh, this not a boomer narrative, haha, this doomer mer- narrative um, is actually, um, you know, think about that. I would think about that. All right. That's, that's fascinating because I, when you started that answer with how we've already been transhumanized through the through social media, I, I was, I started to feel this little, that the, uh, the demon on my left shoulder was speaking doom into my ear at that moment. See, it's, it's, there's no reason to even fight back, but then I, it, you were the angel on the right shoulder saying, no, it's a matter of speaking something into existence. The AI in and of itself isn't necessarily going to do A or B or anywhere from A to Z, but we, we can play a role in that as opposed to what the social media encourages us to do far too often is to wallow in the doom and then be reinforced by having the algorithm send us more doom content, which tells us that everybody feels this way. And that is far from the case. And it's also something that is changeable. And I'm hoping that what you described about what social media does to the human brain is also something that can be reversed. Yes, it can't actually be reversed, but you have to be a very, very, you have to, you have to learn about it and then do practices to stop it from happening, basically. And if you're a parent, don't let your kid get on social media young because their brains are being formed and you don't want them to be formed through social media. Um, so there's, you know, I have a lot of friends also who do work with, with babies, right? And, you know, what's going on, how they're learning and things like that. Um, so, so yeah, so um, all of those things that you just suggested, I would say one thing to uh, Mickey, it's this, it's that I'm still going back to the allegory of the cave as a way to understand, you know, how we exist in our various governments. And, and you know, I mean, we can't avoid them, right? We live within them and they're, they're like, they're structural, right? Um, okay, so I'm not saying... I'm not a revolutionary and say, get rid of governments at all. No, I believe in them. Um, But how do we exist within them and choose to do the right thing and stop evil from happening to us and others? So I would suggest that a good portion of people will buy the Doomer narrative, but those who are aware will use AI and not be used by it. Mm. Okay, that's per- you, you. You basically read my mind there because I w- I was thinking, all right, what what point could I get back to to sort of wrap up? And I jo- I wrote the word down allegory in my in my notes in front of me, thinking like, all right, well that was earlier on how it was such a foundational concept that is so applicable in so many ways now, and unfortunately, um, people don't except like people don't even realize that, but I love that concept. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the allegory of the cave can be, um, can be viewed by today's um, audiences as a, a red pill precedent if they needed it to be more accessible to what it means. Would you, would you say that? I would say that it's, the, it's definitely the first red pill. The first red pill. Yeah. <laughs> That's an awesome note right there to wrap up on. Is there anything you want to say? In closing, um, I give you the floor because we touched on so many topics that I couldn't possibly say to you, 
give me one more thing on this topic. What what would what would be the the the, the thoughts you'd want to leave listeners with as we wrap up? Yeah. Okay. So I would say uh, keep the positive. Keep positive. That's what I would say. Keep positive and don't engage in the hate. Amen. Diana, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. It has. Thanks a lot, Mickey. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you're getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. After such a long, full, and fascinating conversation, all I have to say is thank you to Diana Pasolka for taking the time to share her knowledge and enthusiasm with us. And thank you to all of you for listening. And I ask you, if you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word, share the link, and keep your guard up. <laughs>